unfunded and never present with George Bendo, Ian Evans, Monique Henson, Minnie Mao, Tom Scrag, and Benjamin Shaw. The Jobcast, April 2017, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. I'm Ben and joining me in the studio today are Minnie and Tom. Hello. Hi. Uh, well, actually, that's not true, is it? We're not in the studio. We're actually at Jodrell Bank today. We're in Minnie's office, so if you notice a, a degradation in our sound quality for this episode... Minnie's very tidy office. Minnie's very tidy <laughs> office. We're sitting in front of a desk that's covered in various bits of chocolate, tea, cat food, for some reason. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> There's bird food in the corner. And bird food in the corner, and a feather on the wall. Bird <laughs> In the show this time, George answers your astronomical questions and we interview Dr. Stefan Solner-Rembold about the deep underground neutrino experiment. But first, before all that, Monique talks to Dr. Amit Tagore in this month's Job Bite. Hi, I'm here today with Amit Tagore from the University of Manchester. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you for having me. I think even though you've been at the university for a couple of years now, you've somehow avoided coming on the show. <laughs> yep, I somehow managed to, yep. Yep. Yeah. Which is a massive shame, because you've been doing some really interesting work with Neil Jackson here. Yeah, yeah. It's evolved quite a bit from the project that I came here for initially, yeah. yeah. Oh, so what were you originally working on? Originally, well, half of the postdoc was dedicated for a low-far, long baseline project. So it's a, an array coming online at very low frequencies across all of Europe, really. Different telescopes scattered across all of Europe. And so I did work with Neil on a project with that, basically finding calibrators for it, because that's something that is difficult to do and not something you can do every time you need to do an observation and you always need a calibrator. And the other half of my postdoc was for strong lensing stuff. So LOFAR, that's a radio telescope, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so what do you mean about calibrators? I have no idea about how any of this works. <laughs> okay, okay. So it's an array of telescopes, so it's an mm -hmm. interferometric radio telescope array. And whenever you do an observation with those, you have to have a flux calibrator and a phase calibrator. So you basically mm -hmm. have to have a source which is pretty stable and bright nearby so that you can observe that every now and then to basically set a benchmark for mm -hmm. your real observation. So at higher frequencies, it's pretty easy to get a calibrator, but at low frequencies, what tends to happen is the ionosphere becomes a problem. It varies very rapidly, and you need to have a calibrator very close by. There's a lot of math behind that, but basically because it's at a very low frequency, you need to have something close by and you don't always know if you're going to be able to get that. So what we did is it's basically, you can consider it kind of a community service project. <laughs> we went through and looked for calibrators all across the sky. And so, I mean, mm -hmm. Neil had been working with this with other people before I even came here. I mean, it finished while I was here and it's grown to other things as well. Um, so what kind of objects are you typically looking for as calibrators? So bright objects, basically. I think the basic strategy before I even came here was to find bright objects and pre-existing surveys and focusing on those that are fairly flat spectrum because mm -hmm. if it's flat spectrum it's likely to be bright at lower frequencies as well and just observing those to see if they show up at lower frequencies. I don't know exactly what the fraction was but I think Neil was happy with the results of how many turned out to be good mm -hmm. calibrators. So you were saying things have kind of changed a lot since what you were originally planning here to come to do. Is that because you had more of a focus on lensing or you've moved on to other things? Uh, I maybe changed was the wrong word, but mm. it's grown into a lot of interesting projects that I hadn't imagined doing beforehand. So it kind of transitioned into using strong lensing. So strong lensing isn't 
an end in itself, but it's a means to get to an end. So you use strong lensing as a tool to observe other objects or to constrain other properties of the universe. So I've never done cosmology with strong lensing before, and when I came here, there was a large shift to that. I mean, so I mean, Manchester has a pretty large extragalactic, heavily cosmology-focused department here, and we continue that with strong lensing, which you don't hear about all the time because you know people always hear about weak lensing with respect to cosmology, but we're making strong lensing work too. So how can you use strong lensing for cosmology? A couple of ways. So you can do it statistically, similarly in a way that weak lensing does it. You have a lot of lenses, you observe a lot of them across a wide span of redshifts, and you can infer properties about the universe. So strong lensing, basically the way it comes down to it is if you have an object that's being lensed, which is time variable, like a supernova or a quasar, then you can calculate something called the time delay, which basically means, you know, you get multiple images in strong lensing, so you can calculate how long it takes a little beam of light to get to one image versus how long it takes to get to another image. And with that difference in time, you can figure out the geometry of the universe, and you can drive a lot of cosmological parameters from that. So you can do it statistically like that. You can also do it using maybe one or two very good lenses that you observe very well. So if you find one lens that's really nice, you get a lot of observations. You can maybe get some velocity dispersions, a lot of other, you know, complementary data. Maybe it's even a double lens. Maybe you have multiple things being strongly lensed, and that gives you really good constraints. So even from one system alone, you can do quite a bit. Which completely blows my mind, because in my head, cosmology is something where you need huge data sets observing lots and lots and lots of things to get the statistics. But to hear you can do it with just one or two fantastic objects is incredible. Yeah, yeah. When you get some of these really good data and you see an object that's been just stretched across the sky and you have thousands of pixels in your image where you have just golden data, you can really pin down the constraints a little bit. And the methods have been getting more and more sophisticated. The data has been getting better and better, so the methods have to get better and better. But inevitably, that means that you have to account for more and more astrophysics. You have to account for more things in your own algorithms that might be wrong or things that could have messed up your observations in the first place, like things along the line of sight. Maybe it's scattering in the ionosphere or maybe it's reddening from the galaxy that's doing the lensing itself. So you have to start thinking more about some of the effects that could be affecting your data. But people in the past few years really have taken off this and started to really focus on sources of systematics and beating down those systematics is a game at this point. What do you think strong lensing offers to cosmology over other cosmological probes? Complementarity. Mm -hmm. So it's never good to tackle a problem from one angle only. I mean, maybe it's efficient, but that's not something you know when you're doing the thing itself. Maybe you look back in hindsight and you know that, oh, well, that was the way to go. But when you're doing something, you always want to attack it from multiple angles. Mm -hmm. This is, I guess I'm speaking very generally at this point. And strong lensing does that. It gives you a complementary approach to do it. Not only is it an independent method, but even in terms of degeneracies between cosmological parameters, strong lensing breaks those degeneracies because if there's a degeneracy in two-dimensional plane in there's a degeneracy in two cosmological parameters. Weak lensing might be degenerate in one way, and strong lensing might be degenerate in a completely opposite way that helps to minimize the overall degeneracy or even break it completely. And that's actually what it does do, especially if you have multiple things being strongly lensed. Uh, if you have double lenses, then you really start to get strong constraints and break down those degeneracies. Now, 
strong lensing has its limits. It's not as good as pinpointing some of the more exotic cosmological parameters, and especially in a more exotic models. So models where the dark energy equation of state is changing or something like that, strong lensing may not be so good, but for things like the Hubble constant, it's great. Is that because of assumptions you have to make in using strong lensing for that? Or is it that strong lensing isn't good enough yet, but it will be one day? It's both. So it's a bit of the methods are still getting there. And it's a little bit of we don't have enough objects that we've analyzed yet. There's one project in strong lensing called the Holy Cow Project, which is basically looking at a handful of lenses and looking at them very well, getting lots of data on them, analyzing the neighborhoods of the galaxies, things along the line of sight. And they're pinpointing down cosmology using that. And right now they only have three objects. They will have five soon, and then they will expand that even more to tens and tens. You can already pin down the Hubble constant pretty well. But once they get into the tens of objects and one day into the hundreds, then you'll be able to pin down these more exotic cosmological parameters even better. And what have you specifically been working on? I've been working on looking at the systematics and the methods themselves. So actually, I did that in my PhD. I looked at systematic uncertainties in lens modeling algorithms. Here at Manchester, I've also done that, but I've done it with respect to what the Holy Cow project is doing. So they're doing it with real lenses. I looked at simulations, the Eagle project, and basically simulated strong lenses in there and analyzed that with a similar methodology to see what systematic biases can pop up. Mm-hmm. Are we accounting for them? So I've done that. I've also looked at a handful of lenses themselves, and I've also done a bit of software development. So Manchester has a very strong radio astronomy community, and so naturally I extended some code that I'd written in my PhD to work with radio interferometric data, which is a completely different ballgame, because when you look at optical telescope, you get pixels and kind of what NASA will show you, or ESO will show you, pretty pictures. But when you look at the sky with a radio interferometer, what you see is something completely different. You see something in Fourier space, so it's not what our eye sees, it's something else. And to handle that kind of data, you have to kind of start from scratch a bit. So Mm -hmm. I did that. And I've also worked with some other groups here. Upcoming surveys are going to see a lot of lenses, so I've been making predictions of what kind of constraints Mm -hmm. those surveys and lenses from those surveys, like the Euclid telescope survey. I've been looking at what kind of constraints we'll be able to do on other things like galaxy evolution based Mm. on that. So going back to the work you said you've been doing with the Eagle simulations, so this set of realistic mini-universe simulations, what have you been doing with that and why does Eagle help you do that specifically? Well, Eagle is the biggest and baddest of simulations that's around. So Mm. if you want something that looks the most like what we see in the sky, you go to Eagle. And it has advantages over Illustrious because they, Eagle gets the sizes of galaxies right. And that's really important for us because when we're trying to simulate lenses, we need to get the galaxy sizes right because the Einstein radius is going to be very similar to the effective radius of the galaxies, the size of the galaxies. And that'll affect the lensing properties that we derive very significantly. What's so, the Einstein radius physically? Let's say you have a lens and a source that are aligned on the sky, right one right behind the other. Then the Einstein radius would be the radius at which you get multiple images. Okay, so the kind of scale at which you're going to see your effects. Is that about exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if the galaxy size is also on the same scale, then you've got to be careful. 
Okay, so it's really important to use these eagle simulations, which are, I should have said, they're a big collection of galaxy formation simulations because they get those sizes right. And Yeah, mm-hmm. it gets the sizes right and it accounts for the effects of baryons, of gas and stars. It accounts for the effects of those things on the scales that we're trying to probe here with strong lensing. And that is something that has really only been available to us recently. Before that, it was only dark matter simulations and couldn't really do lensing on galaxy scales. Maybe cluster scales, but not mm-hmm. galaxy scales. So what did you find looking into the systematics using Eagle? We found that what the Holy Cow Project is doing seems to be okay. We pulled out the lenses and then we modeled mm-hmm. them using power law models and using velocity dispersions measurements that we also got from the simulation. And it worked out. Mm-hmm. So one thing that was kind of maybe not so sure at the beginning was our power law assumptions okay. So basically what that means we're just describing the radial density profile of the galaxy using a power law. So something like the density is something like the radius raised to some power of some power, yeah. And it's not clear why that should be the case, because nothing in nature says that it has to be that way. You know, galaxies have dark matter components that we know of now. It has gas components, it has star components, and those aren't individually power law modeled. So why would you expect it to be? But it turns out it was pretty good. I mean, the Holy Cow Project still has, I think, a bit of ways to come. There's still some things they have to address, which I think they are now. But um, so one of the things that I think that they might need to do is maybe how you model velocity dispersion measurements themselves. So right now I think they're using a spherical model to model velocity dispersions, and galaxies aren't spherical. They're ellipsoidal, they're triaxial. So when we were looking at the Eagle simulation to assess the biases and the algorithms themselves, we were using triaxial ellipsoidal models. And... We actually didn't look at what happens if you don't do that. So if you mm-hmm. were just to make the more simplistic assumptions that people have made in the past, do you still get it wrong or do you still get mm-hmm. it right? We didn't do that, but what we did do is said, if you go ahead and you do it the right way, well, I guess what I expect would be the right way, mm-hmm. modeling a track, using triaxial ellipsoids, then you do get it right at least. Yeah. So you're setting the bar high. <laughs> I think so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, now that we have the framework all set up, we can always just dumb it down a bit and mm-hmm. focus on spherical models. It's a particular case of an ellipsoidal mm. model. So thinking about it now, you know, this might just give me some <laughs> ideas now. Uh, we can go back and see if the spherical model is as bad as I suspect mm-hmm. it might be, or if I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. That's interesting to find, though, that you didn't find any major issues with the holy cow approach. If you, as a simulator, you find that actually the observer's technique has been great all along, it's great for them, but it's bad for your paper. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if your paper came out and said, oh, God, no, it's awful, then obviously you'd make a big splash and everyone would pay attention. But actually, we need papers like that to be testing what people are doing and to be showing, actually, yeah, that technique works. It's the dreaded null result, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's one thing that's, I think, huge in biological sciences whenever they get knows that they don't want to publish it mm. but i think it's important to you know one mm-hmm. it tells people okay well it was right all along or it wasn't right all along and two somebody else won't do it later on down the yeah, road that's true yeah you kind of avoid that duplication of research yeah exactly so you said you kind of moved more to using lensing for cosmology once you moved to manchester what kind of thing were you working on before you came here and where were you i was doing my phd at rutgers university back mm-hmm. in the states There I was using strong lensing to focus more on the galaxies that are being lensed themselves. So these are usually high redshift galaxies, and I was looking at particularly starburst galaxies. So we had multi-wavelength data. We had some great optical data, carbon monoxide data, which is radio, other kinds of data as well. So is that where you got your first taste of radio data? 
It was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't doing what is the most correct way to do it, which is working with the Fourier space data that comes from the telescopes themselves. Back then, I was just working with the image plane data, which I think was okay for that particular object. For some, it's okay. For some, it's not. I think it was okay for that one. But yeah, we were just focusing on the objects, trying to get their properties down. Starburst galaxies are especially interesting because they occur mainly at the peak of star formation. So when most of the galaxies are starting to go through their starburst phases and it's just for studying galaxy evolution, it's important to pin down their properties, how massive they are, how fast they form stars, how long they last, IMF normalizations, a lot of different things. Strong lensing was a fun way to look at it because it can go deeper, meaning you can see fainter objects or you can see not so faint objects even better and get better estimates of their properties. It's kind of pushing the limits there. So you get the magnification, obviously, which helps you to see those fainter objects. But is that kind of a counterbalance by the difficulty in reconstructing the sources, or is that fairly straightforward? That is an excellent point, yeah. <laughs> it depends on how good your algorithms are. If you have really good algorithms, then you can account for a lot of different effects. And yeah, I think people are getting more and more confident in the results you get from those. But sometimes, you know, there's things that you just can't account for, like line of sight effects. You just don't know what might be there. So what you do is you just throw in an extra error budget, which basically makes everything less precise. The measurements you get back from lensing have bigger error bars on them because you can't account for some of these things. So there are things like that that will just be there, I think. And, but I think more often than not, or at least nowadays, just the quality of data and how deep you can go makes up for that. And what are you looking forward to in the future for like looking more at the field generally of strong lensing or strong lensing for cosmology? What interests you the most? I'm really curious in rare objects like these double lenses I mentioned earlier and even triple lenses. We're expected to get a handful of those from these mm -hmm. large surveys coming up like Euclid or LSST. Those alone by themselves will give such good constraints on cosmology. I'm looking forward to those quite a bit. And there are other objects that are also rare objects, like lens supernovae. If it's a type 1a supernovae, it's kind of what's called a standard candle. Mm -hmm. So you can nail down things like the magnification of the object, the absolute magnification of the object itself, which will help to break down a lot of systematics in lensing, one of which is the mass sheet degeneracy. So when you get these rarer objects, you can do even better. And I think one of the best things will be what we don't even expect. So... I, I imagine they'll give us like weird things, like maybe we'll see a lens where there's no galaxy, there's no luminous counterpart, and then we'll have to look at that and say, oh, there's no light, but there's clearly a lot of mass here, what's going on? So, you know, the unexpected, I think, will like be interesting. A, a clump of dark matter is a lens, is that what you mean? Or Yeah, yeah, so maybe there'll mm -hmm. be a galaxy that just doesn't shine very brightly at all, but it still happens to produce a lens. Um, so we've seen, I think there's some local objects which seem to be quite massive, but don't have a lot of luminous matter. And people, I think, are trying to understand those. But if we see more of those and at different redshifts, then it'll add to the mystery. No, that does sound cool. When you're thinking about these kind of rarer objects, you're saying like the double and triple lenses, is mm -hmm. there any estimates of how many of those we expect to be able to find? Or is it fairly unknown? There's been some estimates. I know for Euclid, at least. There's one guy who's written a program called, I think, LensPop is the name or something. And there's mm -hmm. maybe a couple of others, but it's just basically simulated lenses. And I think mm -hmm. you're going to find hundreds of double lenses wow. and maybe tens of triple ones I think so there'll be there'll be a good mm -hmm. amount of double lenses yeah definitely definitely and so it's more like you said you know when you get good data you get these rare objects it's more mm -hmm. complicated because with the double lens it's not just that you have two things that are doing the lensing now 
one of the things that's being lensed is also a lens of the other object even farther away from us that's also being lensed. So, oh, wait. So I think I had the wrong idea about what a double lens is. So is that essentially three objects along the line of sight? Pretty but, much, yeah. But they're all at different redshifts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because ah, I was thinking of it as like two objects at a similar redshift and one further back. But gotcha. no, that's even more complicated. How do you disentangle, especially a triple lens? How does that work? <laughs> if you have really good data, if you have velocity dispersion measurements of these things as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have velocity dispersion measurements, and if you can get spatially resolved velocity dispersion measurements, mm-hmm. then that helps to break down a lot of the geometries in this kind of a system. You, velocity dispersions of the lenses. The lens, definitely. Or um, of the source. If you can get the source, fantastic. Okay. But if you can get the lens, that's great. And... Maybe you use some assumptions. Maybe you mean you know how bright one of the objects is, and maybe you can kind of put some priors on how massive you expect it to be. But how would you know how bright it is? Because you don't know if it's lens. If how does that work? Once you have a pretty rough lens model, you can kind of estimate how much it's been magnified within ten percent or so. So you get like a range. You have an idea of where it should lie, roughly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Unless you're unlucky and there's just like a satellite galaxy that's just really near it or right on top of it even then the uncertainty goes through the roof how come just because it's so close to it so if you have a main lens that's Mm. caused this doing the lensing and you have a satellite galaxy near one of the images that satellite galaxy near one of the images might be way less massive but it's Mm -hmm. much closer and what that means is it has its own critical curves basically which are invisible lines that we made up where the magnification is infinite but anyway you have these critical curves that are very near the image and if you're far away from one of these critical curves the magnification doesn't change very rapidly it's pretty Mm -hmm. much constant but once you get close to the critical curves the magnification starts changing rapidly so that's why even something small and not so massive but close by can be a big problem okay that makes sense i've never never come across that before (laughs) so yeah we talked about what we kind of looking forward to in the field generally what about you do you know what your next steps are are you I think this is my last roundup to bat, so uh, I won't be doing another postdoc. I was considering another postdoc here in the UK, but I'll be going back to the States, uh, especially because my partner is there. And so I'll just be applying to jobs outside of academia. Well, I'll probably sad. stay in touch with people here and there finishing up some loose ends, but yeah. Mm. yeah. It'll be sad to lose you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the Dreadcast. It's been great to hear about some strong lensing. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for that, Monique. Now, Ian Evans interviews Stefan Soldner-Rembolt about Dune, D-U-N-E. And today for the Jogcast interview, we welcome Professor Stefan Soldner-Rembold, Head of Particle Physics at Manchester University. So, Stefan, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, yes, I've been in Manchester since 2003, and I worked at various big particle physics labs before that. And I have been a particle physicist for last 30 years, worked on a range of big experiments at CERN, DAISY, Fermilab, all the big laboratories. And you're now working on the DUNE project. So where's that based and, and, and what's your involvement in it? So the DUNE project, Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, is based or will be based uh, in America at Fermilab, which is a national lab in Chicago, across to Chicago. To be more precise, because the experiment is actually about sending a beam of neutrinos to a large underground detector, which will be in a mine in South Dakota, so it is in both locations. The, right. the, the biggest part of the detector will be in this mine deep underground in, in South Dakota. 
So Fermilab is um, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing I know about it is, isn't there a freeway running over the the accelerator? No, no, no? that's not true. Oh, that's such a shame, because I remember driving <laughs> over it and seeing the building and thinking, yeah. wow, I'm driving over a Linac. Oh, no. That's another story that dies a death. Oh, well. So, so the idea is that you're sending a, a, a strong beam of neutrinos from Chicago to South Dakota. What are you looking at in terms of the neutrinos? I mean, do, do we need to go back a little bit and do mm-hmm. a little bit of particle physics just mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that we're all at the same in the same boat? Um, so my understanding is we've got two main groups of particles, hadrons and leptons. Yeah, so um, there are hadrons and leptons, and the fundamental particles, they are both leptons and quarks. The quarks make up uh, the hadrons. Leptons actually originally meant light particles, mm. uh, and uh, hadrons meant heavy particles. Yeah. That's the original meaning of that. The leptons we have, they are the electron, which we're all familiar with, but also it's heavier brothers and sisters, which are the muon and the tau. So they all come yeah. in three families. And then there are the neutrinos. They also come in three families, an electron neutrino, a muon neutrino, and a tau neutrino. Now, different from the electron and the muon and the tauon, the neutrinos are, have no charge and they are much, much lighter. I studied my undergraduate degree quite some time ago, and at that point the question was whether neutrinos had mass at all. Yes. Originally, in what we call the standard model of particle physics, which is kind of encompasses all our understanding of how these particles interact and how it works, neutrinos didn't have any mass, and people mm-hmm. believed that they were, they were massless like photons, for example. Yeah, mm-hmm. But in the 70s, there was exp- experimental evidence that the neutrinos coming from the sun, they were actually much fewer than what you expected, only about a third of what you expected. And that experiment was actually done in the same mine where now Dune will be built uh, a long time ago. And uh, for a while, people were thinking, perhaps we don't understand how the sun works, but it turned out that was not the issue. The issue was that some of the neutrinos on their way out of the sun had actually changed their properties. We call that neutrino oscillations. So they actually go from one type of neutrino to another type of neutrino. And the only way this works and is possible is that they have mass. So from that effect, nice. we know they have to have mass, but a very, very small mass. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about the solution to dark matter here, are we? No, uh, people have thought about neutrinos being dark matter, but it's uh, because the way neutrinos work, they're actually, their masses are very, very small. Mm. They could not really be viable candidates for dark matter. So it's unlikely that neutrinos are the dark matter particles we are looking for. So these neutrinos are are, are oscillating between the different types, the the electron, the tau, the muon. Do we understand that the mechanism by which this this change is taking place? Oh yeah, we understand that mechanism uh, and um, it has something to do with with the weak interaction and the fact that there are different, what we call eigenstates. So the neutrinos you can look at them in two ways. You can say there is an electron neutrino and a muon neutrino and a tau neutrino, and that we call flavor. The other way of looking at the same neutrinos is we can say there are three mass eigenstates. So there's a neutrino one and neutrino two and neutrino three that have each a separate mass. Mm-hmm. And now a quantum mechanical effect comes into play, which has 
to do with the fact that these eigenstates, as we call them in quantum mechanics, are not the same as the flavor eigenstates. And that is an effect, it's a quantum mechanical effect, which leads to these oscillations between right. neutrino flavors. So is, is June designed to try and further understand that mechanism? Yes, uh, there have been quite a few experiments that uh, have made measurements related to neutrino oscillations, and we have a fairly good understanding. But one of the things, for example, we do not understand yet is whether neutrinos and their antiparticles behave differently. We actually don't even know whether neutrinos are particles where you have a separate particle and antiparticle or whether particle and antiparticle are the same. That right. we don't know. So let me step back uh, a little bit. Let's say we have an electron and the antiparticle is a positron. Yes. So one is negatively charged, one is positively charged. For a neutrino, if you would make a particle, uh, take a particle, make an antiparticle out of it, the charge wouldn't change. So in principle, right. it could be possible that it's actually the same thing. And we don't know whether that is the case. Right. And... Uh, the other question, so this will be addressed by different type of experiments, but the other question, fundamental question we don't understand yet is, do neutrinos and antineutrinos behave differently? Mm. And that's called CP violation. And that has something to do with this fundamental problem, why is there more matter than antimatter in the universe? So we look at the Big Bang, in theory yeah. we should have equal amounts of matter and antimatter. Mm -hmm. Obviously, at the moment, we don't seem to have that. There's, there's yeah, obviously, and uh, luckily we don't have it because we are here. There is a, a symmetry between matter and antimatter, and we don't really know where it comes from. And there is a, a theory which is called leptogenesis, so that's leptons again, yeah. which explains this symmetry through an asymmetry which happens related to leptons. And what we are looking for is studying and discovering whether neutrinos behave differently from antineutrinos or not. June is, is a big project. You talked in terms of is it, is it several hundred people involved in... Oh, yeah. So currently, June um, is about 1,000 people okay. uh, from all over the world. So we're talking about something that's that's not quite certain, but you know, it's, yeah, it's it's, it's the next big project in particle physics, and you know, yeah, one of the LHC experiments are about three thousand people, and uh, I expect that Dune will be more than thousand people when once it turns on. Once it's turned on, it's going to be monitoring this flow of neutrinos from Chicago. Mm -hmm. What what are you going to be looking for in in, in, in terms of your results? Uh, I suppose we need to again step yeah. back and look mm -hmm. at the process by which you detect neutrinos. Yeah, so one of the problems with neutrinos is that they rarely interact. Now that's good for us because of course there are many, many neutrinos around us all the time. There are 10 to the 12th, like a million times a million neutrinos going through our body per centimeter squared every second. <laughs> and fortunately, they don't do much uh, because, uh, you know, the, otherwise it would be a problem. But for the experimenters, this is a, an issue because you, in order to get to find any neutrino interaction, you have to build a very, very large experiment with a lot of mass so <laughs> that you find, even when you have an intense, very intense neutrino beam, so that you find interactions. So there are different ways of doing that, but in Dune, the way it's going to be done, you have a very large, or actually four very large tanks of liquid argon. 
right. which each contained 10 kilotons of, uh, so that's a lot of liquid argon, mm. just to give a feeling. So each of these tanks will be like 20 times 20 times 60 meters large. Oh, that's big. And that's big, <laughs> yeah. And so the neutrinos interact and they produce charged particles in these interactions. And those charged particles, they create ionization, which is more charge in that liquid argon. Mm. And that's what you're looking for. So you get these charged tracks that you can mm. then see in the argon. Mm. Mm. You can build an image of the interaction, the sort of mm. things that we're used to seeing at CERN. Yes. So that's sort of like an electrode on one side, which pulls the, the charge. Yeah, so that's it's quite different from the way you do this in a collider experiment. You have the liquid argon. The neutrino creates a charged particle which goes through the liquid argon, it creates the secondary charge. Mm -hmm. You apply a very high voltage, hundreds of kilovolts. Mm -hmm. The charge drifts through the liquid argon to the anode. A pulse is registered, and you reconstruct where the particle went through by the location of the wires and by the time it takes to drift. And the drift is actually over several meters. Mm -hmm. So... These charges drift through the liquid argon over distances of several meters. And then you can register with a very high precision, like a millimeter resolution, this mm. track where it was. And you have to imagine it like, you know, drifting through that liquid argon until it hits the anode and is, is read out. The original South Dakota observatory, did it use chlorine? Yes, that's that's correct. So you've moved to argon. What are the advantages of moving to argon? So the original experiment was not an experiment where you could directly register the uh, interaction. So you created atoms in the chlorine, which you had to filter out. So there was a filtering process nice. and you it was like a, a an offline measurement, if you want. So you yeah, it, count the number of interactions. Uh, yes, exactly. Right. Whereas here, we register the interactions directly and we reconstruct them in space and time, whereas this original experiment just measured how many interactions happened within the time frame where you filtered your chlorine again and you looked for these nice. secondary products, and that is not the same. So the dune detector is deep underground. Why is it where it is? It, it, it's costing a lot, isn't it, to set that project up? It's it's roughly a mile underground in a in a former gold mine uh, in close to Deadwood, South Dakota. So you know the deep. American <laughs> West, and uh, that's a it's a over a hundred year old gold mine, which is a huge. I've been there, you know. It's it's uh, first there was a huge hole in the ground, and then when at some point they ran out of, you know, the possibility to dig mm. a hole, so they just dug and deeper. And for a hundred years, it was a mine. Now the the reason you do this is because because neutrino interactions are so rare, you're always worried about background, mm. and one background is cosmic rays, which bombard us all the time. If you're on the surface, you get a lot of those. So we have a smaller liquid argon detector at Fermilab right now. It's called Microboon. And, uh, you know, for every every interaction we record, we see, in every one we see like 15, 20 cosmic rays going through the right. detector. Now, that's okay. You can filter it out in, a, in the smaller detector. But if you would have something like Dune it would be very difficult to do that. So you want to go underground to basically get rid of all this cosmic ray background which you have on the surface. So with June, you're trying to isolate 
everything you can from uh, outside influences. You're interested really in the beam, but this is an astronomy <laughs> podcast. So the question is, how is this linked into astronomy? So we have different sources of neutrinos, and we will use neutrinos from different sources in this experiment. So what I talked about first were the accelerator neutrinos, which are produced at Fermilab. They go through the Earth, and you re, uh, find them in Dune. But there are also neutrinos from the atmosphere, mm -hmm. uh, from cosmic rays. The muons uh, we just talked about are accompanied by neutrinos. These neutrinos you can also see in, in Dune. And more importantly, there are neutrinos from astrophysical events such as supernovae. And a supernova can actually produce a lot of neutrinos. 99% of the energy of a supernova are produced in the form of neutrinos, mm -hmm. emitted in the form of neutrinos. So if we had a supernova relatively close by somewhere in our galaxy, for example, we would potentially see thousands of neutrino interactions within a short time span, about 10 seconds, mm -hmm. in that detector from the supernova. And that would teach us a lot a lot about how a supernova works, but also about the neutrinos themselves. And we've already detected neutrinos from a supernova. Yeah, that was 1987. Uh, there was this supernova 1987A, and uh, several neutrino experiments were online at the time. It was a coincidence, you know, because mm -hmm. you don't know when it comes. But at that time, all these experiments worldwide uh, found 20, 24 neutrino events. Mm -hmm. Now, we talk about potentially finding thousands for this one single supernova event, which we hope for. Now, a supernova of that size and that uh, close to where we are, we expect something like once every 30 years. So, mm. um, you know, one could be lucky or not, but there's also a lot of other physics you could do in that area of the supernova. If they are further away, you will still see signals, but it will not be quite so spectacular. So you're not looking at thousands of events, you might be looking at tens of events, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you'd still get something out of that. Uh, are there other projects? Because, I mean, you said that in 1987 there were several observatories looking for neutrinos and they detected signals at a similar sort of time and that was sort of confirmation. Mm -hmm. Are there other observatories in operation around the world that would be able to, to corroborate sort of those findings? So other other observatories that look for neutrinos, of course there's the Ice Cube experiment at the South Pole. They look more for high energy neutrinos, so that's on the other end of the spectrum and they have seen spectacular events where they saw the highest neutrinos, uh, highest energy neutrinos ever recorded uh, mm -hmm. over the last uh, few years. Another type of experiment where, is where you don't use liquid argon, but use water. And there is a yeah, competitor experiment, if you want, mm -hmm. uh, or a complementary experiment in, in Japan. It's currently, the current version is called Super Kamiokande, but there is a, an extension upgrade planned, which will be Hyper Kamiokande. And what you do there is you have a big tank of underground water, megatons. The, the advantage of water, obviously, is that liquid argon is relatively cheap, but water is even cheaper. Mm, so you yeah. can build huge, really huge uh, tanks. And there you reconstruct these events, in, a, in these interactions, in a different way. You use an effect which we call Cherenkov radiation. So when a yeah. That's that blue glow you get in, um, in, in a reactor. Yeah, in a reactor exactly, tanks, yeah. yeah. So the neutrino produces a, a charged particle. We never see the neutrino itself. Mm. Yeah, uh, It's always through what it produces. And if it's uh, an electron neutrino, then it will produce an electron. 
If it's a muon neutrino, it will produce a muon. Mm-hmm. That charged particle will go through the water, will produce Cherenkov light, a cone of Cherenkov light. Mm-hmm. And that you reconstruct with photomultipliers, which are detectors that register light right. uh, outside, the, which are on the periphery of the, of the mm-hmm. tank. And they can also do this kind of physics. So at some point, supernova... 2020, 2020A <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is hopefully far enough away that it doesn't fry us, but close enough that we get some decent data <laughs> from it. And, and you will get this uh, sort of storm mm-hmm. of neutrinos and mm-hmm. the Japanese and the ice cube, and you'll be able to find out more about the process of what happens in a supernova. Yeah, you learn about uh, the different phases in a supernova because you also, in an experiment like Dune, you can register and distinguish between the different type of neutrinos and you expect a different flavor or type of neutrino to come out of the supernova at different times. Originally you have something like neutronization where you would produce predominantly electron neutrinos and you can see those where basically the protons and the electrons are pushed together to produce uh, neutrons. Mm. And uh, then later you would expect in the second phase uh, that all different types of neutrino flavor are produced at equal or similar rates. So by, you know, that's in particular models and there are different models, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by studying the time evolution of this neutrino signal over the 10 seconds, you can say something about how the supernova works. But you could also, you know, for example, the original supernova has given us information, even with those 20 events about the mass of the neutrinos, because if neutrinos have different masses mm. the uh, and they are not zero the signal because of relativistic effects you should see some effect on the on the time it takes to get yeah yes. for example one thing you can also look at so so june is uh, what what's the time scale for for june where where are you at the moment and when are you going to start recording data and how long are you going to be recording for so currently the status is that this year 2017, the cavity will be built where the detector will go. So this is mine, of course, exists, but in order to have a cavity of sufficient size, and you know, with all the infrastructure uh, that you need for this experiment, you have to actually build that. And mm. that's going to uh, be done, a start, this process will start uh, this year. At the same time, we are now building prototype detectors, so called protodune which will be constructed and operated at CERN. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just test the technology and make sure that these liquid ar- large liquid argon detectors really work. Yeah. And then the experiments, so we'll st- we, have, we have four of these big tanks, so we hope having the first ones operational in the early 2020s. Yeah. And then we'll probably run without beam for a while, and then around 2026, the beam will be there which comes from Fermilab. So in the middle of the 2020s, you expect it within less than 10 years, the experiments to come online. And then it will take a few years before you, you know, you can start doing physics from the beginning, but before we really have conclusive results on on the CP question. And so it will yeah. probably take a few years. Wow. So you're looking at maybe 2030. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> But all these projects, I mean, if you look at the LHC, it's the same thing. It, yeah, the time uh, they scale have been now. the time scale of these projects are now, uh, these are almost generational projects. It's yeah? a proper big science, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, right. it is big science. 
June has got its work cut out, trying to work out CP violation, uh, leptogenesis, etc. What do you see as being the next big thing in particle physics in terms of this is a question that we want to answer and we haven't answered yet? The situation has changed a little bit from where we were at a few years ago, where we had a clear goal which was driven by the open question, what is, is does the Higgs boson exist? And yeah. uh, that was part of the standard model and to complete the standard model we needed to see the Higgs boson and that happened a few years mm. ago and that was an important uh, discovery. Now there are very important questions left but we are more in an exploratory phase where you, you have to find look, out what the questions uh, are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So where is really the area where new physics will show up and the CP violation question regarding neutrinos, which we talked about before, is certainly one of the most important ones. And neutrinos are a fascinating part of the, you know, this this journey uh, to find physics, new physics beyond the standard model. The other question is: is there supersymmetry? You know, that's what the LHC uh, looks mm. for currently. There is no indication for supersymmetry from the LHC. That raises questions of whether there is some other theory that solves these problems related to uh, which, which supersymmetry was supposed to be solving, or perhaps it's just hidden or it's just around the mm. corner. So I think this will continue to be important. Dark matter is a, is a very important subject yeah. where also astronomy <clears throat> and particle physics intersect mm, because yeah. there are many particle physics experiments that can search for dark matter directly, for mm. example, the LHC. And then there are dedicated experiments that look for dark matter. But of course, there is an astronomy aspect uh, to this. Uh, so it's one of those intersections. That's great. Well, I think we've probably come to the end. We've talked a lot about um, about particle physics and how it links into astronomy. So thank you very much, Stefan. It's been a most enjoyable talk. Thank you. Thanks for that, Ian. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So I'll start this week. As most of you will know, there's a solar eclipse later this year, total solar eclipse, that's passing over the uh, continental United States, going from northwest, Oregon, down to the southeast, South Carolina, on the 21st of August, 2017. Now, I know lots of people that are planning to visit um, the States and are setting up and are camping out on the ground and finding where they're going. And Millie signalling as well that she's hoping to go. I'm you... very excited about this. <laughs> Are you going? Um, I'm hoping to. I'm not finalised things yet. But what I wanted to talk about was two scientists that are going to be observing the eclipse, but not from the ground. They've got some converted bombers, B-52 bombers from NASA, and they're going to chase the shadow across the US. Wow. So they've got high-speed cameras, they've got high-definition cameras, they've got a bunch of instruments. And they'll be above the cloud layer. <laughs> Hopefully, yes, they'll the be above the cloud, cloud layer, yeah. chasing the shadow as it goes. So on the ground, the time of the total eclipse is about two and a half minutes. But by flying very high and very fast, they can stretch that to three minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot. But the shadow is moving across the surface of the Earth at about uh, Mach 3 and above. So it's travelling very quickly, and even with the fast bombers, they can only stretch the time a little bit. You just dropped a term there that I'm going to have to ask you to explain. What's Mach 3 mean? Oh, Mach 3, three times the speed of sound. So the Mach limit is where you hit the speed of sound, and if you stay there, you shake your aircraft to pieces. 
because there's a lot of vibration just about the speed of that sound. Ah, okay. So that's how you get a sonic boom, right? Yep. When your plane's travelling faster, or your aircraft is travelling faster than the speed of sound, you're leaving the disturbance behind you that you caused in the atmosphere. And that's the sonic boom that you hear. Mm. Or you used to hear when Concorde flew. Now that's long gone. So the speed of sound is 340 metres per second or so? Like, that's how we calculate it. You hear the lightning and then you count... Wait, no, you see the lightning, then you count the number of seconds and you times it by 300 metres to get the distance. Well, we used to divide by five. This is the UK. We do miles. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar (laughs) with these units. (laughs) So divide by five, it gets you the number of miles away that the uh, lightning strike was. Oh, that's quite clever. We don't get many thunderstorms in Manchester, do we? You don't? I don't think we do. No, no not thunderstorms. Rain, yes. Yeah, Every it's day. It's persistent rain, yeah, but it's not rarely does it get interesting. For nothing, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So why exactly are they doing this? Why are they chasing the eclipse shadow? A, it lengthens the amount of time you've got for totality. So while the sun, sun's blocked out, you can look at a lot of things that are going on in the solar atmosphere. So if you extend that by, I don't know, 20% or so, you've got that much extra data that you can collect. Going in the bomber not only gets you above the clouds that are probably blocking the uh, the view, but also gets you very high above the bulk of the atmosphere. So you get less interference from the atmosphere, less scatter, less blurring. But you're unstable. You're in a plane. How are you going to conduct your... You can compensate for that. Um, Sophia does it, isn't it? Sophia does, yeah. yeah, X-ray is, satellite, isn't yeah. it? Uh, is it? Was it infrared? Oh, it might be infrared. My bad. Sophia satellite. Yeah. I'll look it up for you. Yeah, if you put them on balloons, you put astronomical observations from balloons, mm. then again, it's a floating platform. It's like camera shake. Most modern cameras, digital cameras, have a mode that minimises camera shake. By looking at the way the image is moving on the chip, you can eliminate some of that problem. Nice. But this particular eclipse is relatively short. I mean, I think you can get up to four or five minutes of totality. I know that the one in 2009 over China was something like four and a half minutes of totality. July 16, 2186 has one at seven minutes, 29 seconds. And June 13, 2132 has one at six minutes, 55 seconds. Yes, this one's relatively short. Mm. And it depends on the, the actual geometry and where it starts and stops and the track across the Earth as to how wide the shadow is um, and therefore what the duration of totality is for an observer on the surface. That's very cool. That's I always like cool. thinking about the fact that there's this cosmic conspiracy that the you know angular diameter of the moon is exactly the right size <laughs> to cover the sun. Who says that's a conspiracy? Well, that brings us nicely into intelligence that's greater than ours, the potential for life on Enceladus. As you guys may or may not have heard, Cassini has recently detected molecular hydrogen coming off Enceladus, the sixth largest moon of Saturn. Now, I really wanted to talk about this because not only may this be the best chance for life in the solar system, aside from here on Earth, but also because this is Ben's favorite astronomical object and I couldn't resist the urge to scoop him. Yeah, yeah. Go on, then. Scoop away. But Ben's going to jump in when I get any Enceladus fact wrong. Actually, I wouldn't have even (laughs) known about Enceladus if it weren't for you. Okay. (laughs) Never heard of it. (laughs) Um, But basically, Enceladus um, is the sixth largest moon of Saturn, 
And it's actually responsible for one of Saturn's rings. It's got these crazy huge plumes coming out of these ice volcanoes at the poles of this uh, moon. So the surface of Enceladus is mainly ice, and um, I think it's something like a 20 mile, to use your units, 30, 40 kilometer thick ice shell under which there's a salty ocean. And so there are these big old ice volcanoes at the poles of the moon that shoot out plumes of material that include water and now molecular hydrogen. And this is particularly exciting because molecular hydrogen um, is evidence for hydrothermal activity on Enceladus. I believe there were other models, but the uh, model for hydrothermal activity was the best fit model, and it's also the simplest explanation. And this is very cool because this suggests that life may be on Enceladus because on Earth, when we have these kind of geothermal vents, these, um, sorry, hydrothermal vents, we see a lot of simple organisms over there eating all the hydrogen. And so the fact that Enceladus has an environment that's very similar to potentially what we see, you know, at the bottom of the Dead Sea or at the um, deepest oceans suggests there may be simple life forms. This isn't to say there are like, you know, Enceladians roaming around on the surface or under the surface, but simply that there's a potential that simple organisms may occur. And this is particularly exciting because right now we have exactly one data point for life in the universe. And so we're not entirely sure what causes it. Whereas if we have two and we can recreate these scenarios where life forms, this could potentially show us how life is forming and, you know, potentially show us who's creating these cosmic conspiracies to make the moon the same angular size <laughs> as the sun. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about the Enceladus just to really scoop in. But it was very interesting to learn about this, and I think it would be cool if there were life in our Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a much better candidate for life than, than Mars ever was. Right. For example, and yet all this focus is on Mars, of Mars between, you know, I think Mars is most intriguing because... It's relatively nearby. The, the other problem with Mars, of course, is that it's, it's close enough to cause a problem if we do find life there in that for, for a long time, Mars and the Earth have been swapping rocks. Those rocks could contain little bits and bats of life, so there's a, a natural cross-contamination that's occurring. And so if we found life on Mars, the chances are it would be the same life on Earth. It would be from the same biochemical scheme as the life we have on the Earth. How would you kill any organisms that had accidentally hitched a ride? Do you think anything would have survived on the... Well, we know, we know of plenty of these extremophiles, which are, right. you know, bits of bacteria that can survive huge temperatures, tiny temperatures, blasts of radiation, vacuums. Um, and so it's perfectly plausible. In fact, it's probably inevitable that if, you know, there's some, during the late heavy bombardment or later when we've been hit, you know, we still get hit from time to time by rocks and, and so does Mars, that this natural cross-contamination has occurred. And so we'd have to be careful if we find life on Mars, to you know, we'd have to carefully study it and find out which tree of life it was from. Right. My feeling is that it would be from the same tree of life as us. And so, whereas Enceladus is far away, but who's to say that Cassini hasn't brought its own little, you know, microbes from Earth all the way over to Saturn? Well, quite. I mean, that's that's the thing I was going to come on to talk about, which was that um, Cassini is now in its final months. It's currently it's changed its trajectory in the last few weeks to a new series of ever-decaying orbits, the last of which we'll see it plummet into the cloud tops of Saturn in Saturn's northern hemisphere. And this was never the plan. Cassini's been extended a few times now. Its original end of life was 2008 or so, um, but it kept getting extended. And this, these discoveries on Enceladus, the idea that it was potentially suitable for life isn't a new idea. The molecular hydrogen discovery is the latest 
in a long line of things that they have water and methane. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is a this is a moon that has it has water, it has organic chemistry, um, it has an internal heat source, probably due to tidal interactions with Saturn. So it has all the right elements that make it potentially suitable for living organisms. And so initially, Cassini would have been quite happy just to power itself down and just carry on floating around Saturn ad infinitum. But to minimise the possibility, the possibility is already quite low, but to minimise the possibility of it actually hitting and contaminating Enceladus with something we've sent with it, we have clean rooms in ESA and NASA, but they're never. we can never say they're 100% clean. We may well have sent some critters on board Cassini that are still alive, but in, as it were, sleep mode. Um, that if they end up somewhere like Enceladus, where life can potentially flourish, they may then reanimate and contaminate the moon, which means that any data we then get from Enceladus is kind of noisy. Sadly, in order to mitigate that possibility, we are just making Cassini kill itself, which is That's very so sad. sad. <laughs> it's very sad. Um, so what's going to happen when it goes into Saturn's atmosphere? So it will continue taking data as long as it can and send it back to the Earth. Because Saturn's quite gassy. Yeah. All the um, way through, right? But on, on its, before it gets to that stage, its 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 orbit has now changed so that it's in a very sort of, uh, it's in a highly now elliptical orbit with Saturn at one end of the focus. And so it's going far away from Saturn, coming back in. And it's actually getting to the point where it's going to be going between Saturn and the inner edge of the rings. So it's right. getting incredibly close to Saturn. It's quite a risky manoeuvre. Uh, by all accounts, and um, what they're hoping to do in these final months is get an idea of Saturn's magnetic field, get more of an idea of its its rotation rate. Because of course, a day on Saturn is hard to define because it's a it's Gassy. a gas ball. It'd be like trying to find out how long a day is on Earth when Earth is covered in cloud. Wouldn't be easy to do. So instead, what they can do is look at the way the magnetic field changes at a point outside of Saturn, track the way the magnetic field rotates. Presumably, that magnetic field is fixed to something. Um, and that might give them a better idea of what's going on in the core of Saturn, at least how, how fast something's rotating. So this might be a stupid question, but do you think it'll hit something solid before it collapses under the gravity? I doubt it. I th I think the, the the feeling is it will burn up like a meteor. So oh, if right. You, if, you're in, if you're on whatever surface Saturn has in there, you might see a Cassini shooting star, <clears> I guess. And it's it's going to be very sad. I've I've been following Cassini for since it launched, and so it's going to be really sad for me. I hate to think how sad it's going to be for the scientists that work on it. But I mean, it's given us just so much. The the deployment of the Huygens probe down to Titan um, that told us a lot more about the surface composition of Titan, and of course, it's the Cassini itself's two main results, which are uh, the geological activity on and in Enceladus, and the fact that Titan is such an interesting moon. You know, it's got it's got rivers, it's got gullies, it's got lakes, it's got weather, it's got clouds, and the solvent there isn't water, it's methane. Um, so Carolyn Parker is is quoted as saying that you know you could be standing on the shores of Lake, Lake Michigan, brimming with paint thinner. So it's incredibly exotic and yet faintly Earth-like. It's just a, a really cool place. And so you know, I, I was talking about this to Rod Sharp, who's a, a Radio Five presenter the other day. A bit of a name drop there. Probably best to have a kind of Dr. Seuss attitude towards this, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. As sad as it is, look what we've got from it. That's good That's life advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When's the next probe to the Saturn system? Oh, is I don't, on the way? I don't know. Plan? I think given this recent result on Enceladus, I don't think it'll be long before we send something back there to do more. Uh, the nice thing about moons with plumes like um, Io uh, and Enceladus is you don't actually have to have a lander and go down and drill. 
you can just fly an object through mm. the plume, take samples of it and, and measure its composition. Another really cool way of doing that, actually, is you don't even have to go there. You can wait until you can do it from the Earth. You can wait until a background star passes behind the plume and make a spectroscopic oh, measurement absorption. Of, the, of the composition of the plume. So that's quite cool. So I suspect there'll be a lot of sensitive telescopes pointing towards Enceladus. Let's hear from someone who's very much alive. Here are Ben and George Bendo with Ask an Astronomer. Hello and welcome to Ask an Astronomer for April 2017 Extra. Our first question comes from Mark Shaw who asks, in light of the new MetaLens developments, how will this affect optics in future telescopes and camera lenses? So if you design a meta lens for a given frequency, could you have an array of them on one sensor? So to back up a bit for people who aren't well versed in this topic, meta lenses are a new type of uh, technology that are composed of multiple thin fins of transparent dielectric materials such as titanium dioxide put onto a thin layer of glass all of which has a thickness equal to a fraction of a millimeter. The titanium dioxide, or other material that you use on the glass, acts like antennas that scatter the light. If the fins are arranged properly, you can focus the light. So, in other words, the metal lens will work like a very classical glass or plastic lens. The scientists who have developed these lenses are already researching potential commercial applications. For the general public, uh, meta lenses could be very useful in making very small cameras, such as cameras and mobile phones. For laboratories, they could be very useful for making more precise optics for microscopes and optical benches. Hence, meta lenses could be revolutionary in many types of applications. However, the same may not quite be true for astronomy. Telescopes primarily rely on concave mirrors or other large reflective surfaces to both collect and focus light, with a very heavy emphasis placed on the collecting area. The large size, the large collecting area, is needed to detect the signal from faint astronomical objects. To achieve the same performance with a meta lens that you would get with a concave mirror in a telescope, the meta lens would need to be as large as the concave mirror that's replacing. And it is very likely that technical issues would arise either with trying to manufacture a meta lens, which is the same size as the primary mirror in many of today's professional astronomical telescopes, which are often uh, starting at eight meters if they're currently being built. And you could also see issues with making a male lens rigid over an area of eight meters or more as well. So you aren't going to replace the primary mirror within a telescope with a male lens. However, the instrumentation that's attached to the back of the telescope uh, still includes uh, many classical lenses in the light path before the light gets absorbed by the individual sensors within the instrumentation. And it's within the instruments where you could potentially replace the classical lenses with male lenses. Now, this probably is not a major issue for ground-based telescopes 
particularly where in some telescopes uh, the instruments may contain extra weight so that they can act as a counterbalance uh, for the telescopes. But it could be very beneficial for space-based instrumentation where cutting the mass needed for instrumentation allows for more mass to be used in other parts of the telescope. So, for example, storing extra coolant to cool down the detectors that are on the telescope as well. So it could be very beneficial for some parts of astronomy, but it's not going to be a major revolution. Okay, thanks for that, George. Our second question comes from John Brooks. Does light only travel in the one direction, or does it radiate in the opposite direction as well? And if not, what actually forces light to only travel in one direction? Well, the short answer is that it is possible for things in nature to emit only fo one photon, in which case the photon will only travel in one direction. The most common example involves a single atom with an electron in a, an excited energy state dropping to a lower energy state and emitting a single photon in the process. So this happens frequently in nature. Now, the longer explanation for this touches on quantum mechanics, where it is important to remember that many things at the subatomic level, including photons, act as both particles and waves. For photons, the particle concept comes into play uh, when we talk about atoms absorbing or emitting photons in terms of the photoelectric effect. For an electron to move from a lower energy level which we'll call E0, to a higher energy level, which we'll call E1, the atom needs to absorb one photon with an energy equal to the difference between E1 and E0. Two photons with half the energy will not have the same effect. Conversely, when an electron in the atom moves from the higher energy level E1 to the lower energy level E0, it will emit one and only one photon with an energy equivalent to E1 minus E0 again. The photon, when emitted, will still act like a wave in some ways, but it travels in only one direction, and it is only one photon. A second photon does not need to be emitted in the other direction at all for this to work. Also note, uh, that the energy of the photon is directly proportional to its frequency and inversely proportional to its wavelength. So, for example, a blue photon will have more energy than the red photon. The important thing to keep in mind uh, with any type of uh, atomic or subatomic level interaction like this is that it is necessary to conserve energy and momentum. Uh, so in our scenario where a single atom emits a single photon, the way energy is conserved is relatively straightforward. Uh, the atom starts with excess energy in the beginning with the electron in a higher energy state. And afterwards, uh, the excess energy from the electron dropping from the higher to lower energy state is converted into the photon. However, the reaction needs to conserve momentum as well. 
While photons do not have mass, they do have momentum related to their energies and as well as their wavelengths and their frequencies. The emission of a photon by an atom can push the atom backwards, sometimes in a way that could be noticeable if we could see the individual atoms. For example, hydrogen produces a spectral line visible at 1216 angstroms. When a single hydrogen atom produces this type of photon, the kickback will cause the hydrogen atom to move in the opposite direction at a speed of 3.3 meters per second. Okay, thanks, George. So our third question actually comes from Eleanor Horner. Eleanor is about the same age as the Jodcast. She was at Jodcast Live when it was her 10th birthday, around the same time as the Jodcast celebrated its 10th birthday. So I think now she'll be actually 11. She she wrote the email when she was 10. I think she'll now be 11. So happy birthday, Eleanor, for whenever it was recently. And Eleanor asks us, how often can we see comets? So the solar system could potentially contain 100 billion comets, according to various websites that discuss comets, including NASA websites. Most of these comets are in orbits beyond the orbit of Neptune, and in fact Pluto, which spends most of its time outside the orbit of Neptune, is like a very large comet in some ways. However, astronomers to date have only identified a few thousand comets. Uh, Many comets, particularly those in the Kuiper Belt where Pluto is found, can probably be seen anytime you want to, as long as you have a large enough telescope. However, Eleanor is probably much more interested in knowing how often we can see comets so bright that they're visible to the naked eye. A few websites have compiled lists of great comets. Um, I would recommend the list compiled by Comet Watch, an amateur astronomy website at www.cometwatch.co.uk. In their list, they indicate that since 1900, 14 comets have appeared brighter than magnitude zero, which is equivalent to the brightness of Vega, the fourth brightest star in the sky. This is equivalent to seeing one very bright comet about every eight years or so. So that's how often you'll see a really bright comet. Also, if you are interested, uh, according to the International Astronomy Union's Minor Planet Center, 36 comets were discovered last year. And according to the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Small Body Database, 80 known comets reached perihelion in their orbits. And perihelion is the location where an object is closest to the sun. So hopefully uh, that answers your question, but I think the answer that you're looking for is that uh, we see really bright comets once every eight years. Okay, thanks very much, George. Thanks for that, Ben. And now on to the feedback. Feedback this month has been um, rather extensive, possibly because of the practical joke we played last episode. Um, We are, of course, back, as you've probably realised by now. Uh, We're not going anywhere. We told you last month that that was the last show. It's not. We have never been continuously funded by anybody. 
this is all done on a shoestring and on best efforts. So any funding that gets pulled is a subtraction from zero. <laughs> um, so we are still here. Uh, and many people realise immediately, because the show went out on time, that it must have been an April Fool. Um, other people didn't. And we um, are sorry. And we are sorry. Uh, we are still here. But we've got quite a lot of email, uh, quite a lot on Facebook and quite a lot on Twitter. So we'll read some of the highlights. Julia Reimer says, I wanted to tell you how sad I am that the Jodcast will not be continuing. It's my favourite podcast. I tell everyone about it. I will miss it a lot and wish there was some way to crowdfund it. But it sounds like that can't happen. You're all very smart and talented, and I thank you for making astronomy and science so interesting and accessible for those of us not in science. I'm an artist inspired by nature and science, and you can see my work at juliarimer.com. Best of luck with everything. Well, I actually emailed Julia back just to quickly say, you know, we're not going anywhere. Um, but one one nice thing about this April Fool, it's elicit, elicited a lot of compliments for the Jodcast, uh, which is nice. <laughs> so next time we're feeling a little down on ourselves. <laughs> Just threaten to stop. <laughs> we're kidding, we're kidding. <laughs> David Havel says, you you fooled me on the third. Hope you're keeping download data just in case. Keep it up. Thanks for that, David. Steve Smethurst says, I am a fool. You, you are cruel and heartless, but very funny. I fell for it hook, line and sinker. I was about to say I've been listening for more than 10 years and I was about to tell you I treasure my original Jodcast t-shirt from 2006. I was about to weep and wail and start an Indiegogo campaign. But never mind, I won't bother telling you any of that. Just 10 more years, bring it on. Indeed. Manuel uh, says, I can't believe you're going off the air. I've enjoyed your shows immensely since I discovered you guys on science360.gov. I was close to tears, not sure if laughing or already missing you guys on your swan song show. I hope whoever pulled your funding for the cast gets named Earth's ambassador to the Oak Cloud and someone else steps up with a lavish budget so I can keep hearing you guys. In the meantime, thanks. I think Earth's ambassador to the Oak Cloud is a brilliant job title. Yeah, I don't yes. think they deserve that. Let's send yeah. them to the... Where would you send somebody you really didn't like in the universe? Did you write to Manuel? I did write to Manuel, um, just to reassure him that we are still here, because it does feel mean. It feels really <laughs> mean. It's, it's such a cruel joke. Greg uh, says, I kept thinking it was an April Fool's thing, but everyone played it so straight. Did we? Those of us science astronomy fans in the States are as worried as those in the UK. Keep up the good work. Cheers and jod on, Dr. Greg and Bernstein. Thanks, Greg. Jason says, I was just curious if you can comment on the loss of funding for the Jodcast was related at all to Brexit. I'm really sad to see you go. You are by far the podcast with the best compromise between hard science and accessibility. Heartbreaking. I think I emailed you back, Jason. Um, if not, I'm sorry. We did use the fact that there is a Brexit in order to make this joke slightly more believable and we did talk about the effect of brexit on science a few months yeah. ago i think maybe august last year or so okay um anything from facebook well we got lots of feedback on facebook this month <clears throat> dave roberts says love the podcast guys mark defry says great episode love the interview with stefan baxter and great ask an astronomer questions this month james Walters says, very glad to hear you're not going away. It was a touch suspicious to see a podcast released on the first day of the month. <laughs> Rub it in, James. Um, great to hear an explanation of the number stations riddle. Keep up the good work. 
Mark says, I regard all news as fake these days, but thanks for the number station's explanation, annoyingly simple. And yes, another live in five, not ten years would be most welcome. I enjoyed the last one. Just let me know when tickets are available. Just don't host it in Australia like the other lot. <laughs> we won't. I like what Francis Whiteford said. It was so badly acted, I almost believed it. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. We try our best. <laughs> Teresa Arispe says... I was hoping it was an April Fool's joke. You guys really gave me a scare. I'm so glad the Jodcast is continuing. It's my favourite podcast. This just made my day. Julia Brooker, at least I expressed my aberration for the show. Now back to my hidey hole in embarrassment. (laughs) You weren't the only one, Julia. (laughs) Francis Day, I'd like to pretend I wasn't fooled, but I did have to rush to Facebook to check, especially since I've just lashed out on a second class stamp to send you a postcard, and I'd have hated that to be wasted. Jot on and on and on. Well, we did actually get that postcard, uh, but I left it at the office in Manchester today and forgot to bring it with me to Jodrell Bank, so I'm really sorry. We will read your postcard out for sure um, in the next episode. Shame on you, Bad ben. planning on my part. <laughs> I like what Andrew Horner said as well. The least convincing joke was Fiona trying to sound downbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Happily normal service was resumed. The rest was great. I particularly like the idea of the wall around the earth to be paid for by the Galactic Senate. Well done. A couple more. Francis Cairns. Thank heavens we finally have the solution to last year's April Fool. And please don't ever say your funding has been cut again. LOL. Well, Francis, we don't have funding, so (laughs) it's very sad. Yeah, we can probably only get away with that joke once. (laughs) Martin Holden says, that wasn't very nice. We're sorry, Martin. (laughs) And John Purvis says, well, at least we found out about George's number station, even though you strayed into 24 legacy territory to extract the info. Yeah. George is fine, by the way. I mean, it's... (laughs) (laughs) He's not here. It's a complete coincidence. (laughs) He's on a therapist's couch as we speak. Well, as you can imagine, we had quite a few tweets through. We've got a small selection here. So, A.G. Bramovich. Just listen now and on Twitter for more info. Truly suffered bereavement at the news of your demise. So relieved it's not true. So are we, A.G. So are we. Yeah. Uh, Blob Rana. Being a Jedi, I sensed it was an April <laughs> Fool joke. Well, I have to say I was fooled. I wasn't in on the secret, so you're better than I. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the credits for that show, though, weren't you? You did something. <clears throat> yes, I think I, I edited one of the interviews, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was the secret recording session. And actually, if, you, if you're on Twitter and you're not following Blobberana, you should, because there's lots of really um, interesting content that they post on things that are happening in the night sky and general news stories. It's where I got a lot of my current astronomy news from. A tweet from Jamika. Oh my God, I just literally stopped my workout to tweet my disbelief that the show has lost funding. So relieved it's a joke. <laughs> Jod on. That scream in the gym that other people heard, that was Jamika. The Falcon. What's this about funding being cut? Who do we complain to? Please complain. We, we'd appreciate more funding. Any would be gratefully received. Yeah, we'd like to say send us money, but we're not allowed to receive money. But you know, <laughs> send, send us a food parcel. <laughs> Ben's looking quite peaky. <laughs> and finally from Jen Gupta. Can always tell it's an April's Fool's joke with you because it's the one month that the episode comes out on time. <laughs> Boom. Wounded. It's true, though. <laughs> yes, there was an awful lot of special effort going in to get that out on time. 
but well worth it, I think. Definitely, definitely. So that's it, I guess. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Um, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. There's Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Stefan Solner-Rembold and Amit Tagore for the interviews. The editors were Sally Cooper, Ian Evans, Benjamin Shaw and George Bendo. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, Joy on! on.